she'll get mad at me because every time I say something publicly about her, she fusses at me. But the thing is, I can outrun her. Well, all I can tell you is, gang, when I got up this morning, it's dark. When I came to church, it's dark. When I came out of my office to come to the worship center, guess what? It's dark. I decided it's going to take my body six months to catch up, and by the time I get caught up, guess what? It's going to be light. Amen. But I'm glad you're here. A good crowd on this beautiful, early, rainy day. Let's take our Bible, okay? Let's grab God's Word. And I want you to go with me to an Old Testament passage, Isaiah chapter 6, okay? In fact, as I studied, uh, as I wrote my sermon out Friday morning, I decided we may come back here next week as well. Isaiah chapter 6, it's an incredible Incredible sermon, I, a, a mess passage of scripture. I've been reading an awful lot lately about uh, Martin Luther and Calvin and how they approached the Word of God, how they approached life. And I have to tell you, uh, when you read the books about Martin Luther and Calvin and John Knox and Zwigli and those guys, um, their reverence for God's Word is, is most humbling to me. And this week, I, I just I got through with uh, Calvin, and now I'm, I'm into Luther, a little short little biographies. And it's basically a, a treatise on how they studied God's Word and how they preached and how they approached Scriptures. And I have to tell you, it's a little intimidating to think that someone like me or Don could stand before a group of people and the first words out of our mouth are, let's take God's word. It's a little intimidating. Now, the passage we're going to look at this morning is, is about as intimidating a passage that any preacher could preach on or any teacher could teach on. And so this morning, we want to ask for God's grace to help us not just get our head around it, but realize the importance of it. And between this week and next week, maybe we might realize uh, what God did in Isaiah's life and then the message that he began to proclaim. I don't know if you remember Watergate. This group probably does. The next group may not remember much about Watergate. But the hatchet man of the terrible Watergate saga was a man by the name of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson was about as hard, mean, ruthless as a man could be. When the Watergate was exploding all around him and all around about our nation, he made a visit to a friend who had just recently been converted to Christ. Chuck Colson, in his book, Loving God, said that, that I, as I talked with him, he said, I realized that my friend had something that I just didn't have. After he talked to his friend, deep conviction began to consume Chuck Colson's life, so much so that he began to weep uncontrollably. In fact, he says in his book that he was weeping so greatly that he could not even put the keys 
into the uh, starter. He could not even drive the car. And I want to read to you what he wrote. He said, that night I was confronted with my own sin. Not just Watergate's dirty tricks, but the sin deep within me. The hidden evil that lives in every human heart. He said it was painful. I could not escape it. I cried out to God and found myself drawn irresistibly into his waiting arms. That was the night I gave my life to Jesus Christ and began the greatest adventure of my life. Chuck Colson had had a lot of adventures in his life. Man, he was in the inner circle. He could walk into the president's office anytime he wanted. Most of us here have had some incredible journeys, adventures in life, haven't we? Some of us have gotten to go overseas. Some have traveled the world. Chuck Colson said it was at that moment I began the greatest adventure of my life. He later described the journey this way. It was a journey into the majesty of God. It was a journey into the absolute holiness of God. And it made me thirst for more. Dear people, as hard and as mean as this man was before Christ, when confronted with God's holiness, he became like clay in the hands of a potter. If anything describes the transformation that occurs when a sinner meets God, it is this. When you see God in his absolute holiness, you can never live the same way as before. And if you think you've seen the Lord and you live the same way as before, then the fact of the matter is you've never seen the Lord. You may have had some kind of emotional experience. You might have had some kind of guilt-driven, guilt-release experience. But you've never met the incomprehensible God. Because you see, when you see God, you see yourself. And when you see His grace, what His grace can do in your life, it creates a thirst so deep of a thirst that it can never be quenched and your life will never be the same again. And dear people, listen to my heart today. I am convinced, not just at Indian Springs, but I am convinced all over our nation that we have people who say they've seen the incomprehensible God. But week by week, They'll walk away no different. And during their week that nothing's changed. And I fear they've never really seen God. So therefore, while they may call themselves Christians, the fact of the matter is, I don't know that God would say that. And I don't know that the Word of God would bear testimony to that. 
For you see, when God captures a heart, God changes the heart. And God creates a thirst within the heart that becomes a lifelong adventure, the greatest adventure anybody could ever live. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah met God. He met God in the year that a great king, King Uzziah, died. Uzziah had been a pretty good king, at least till the end. The nation had had been very prosperous, financially healthy for about 52 years. But you see, no nation can handle prosperity. Greed always kicks in. And when the king died, what Isaiah saw coming came. The nation turned away from God and began a slide that would end in captivity. Oh, Isaiah saw it. Isaiah preached against it, but they wouldn't listen. And Isaiah could not stop it. However, seeing God changed his life, as it does to everyone who truly sees God. Let's stand in honor of God's Word. I was going to read the entire chapter, but I think what we'll do this morning is stop at verse 7. And then if the Lord is gracious, then next week we'll begin in verse 8 and finish the chapter. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Father, I I stand a little in awe of this. I stand before my church intimidated by this. And yet, God, there's a majesty here that transcends the human mind, that moves beyond the human heart. It's been been captured in Scripture so that feeble people and feeble preachers, through the foolishness of preaching, can somehow communicate to people the matchless majesty of an incomprehensible God, you. May we get a glimpse of it. May it impact us in Jesus' name.
Thanks, be seated. A couple things, a couple points to my message this morning, okay? Number one, I want to spend a little bit of time on what I'm going to call the incomprehensibility of God. God is incomprehensible. Now, you you know what that means, that you can't get your head around God. You can't always understand all there is about God, that there is a point. I was talking to someone the other day, and and there was a mother asking me, well, how do you how do you define and how do you describe uh, God to my child, you know? I mean, everybody was created, but God was never created, those kind of questions. And I said, God is God. And there's some things about God that we don't know that he chooses not to give us and things we'll never understand. That's the majesty of it. That's the awesomeness of it. Therefore, we worship him who is majestic above all things. And so I want to talk a little bit to you this morning about the incomprehensibility of God, okay? About the time you think you got your head around him, he's going to show you you don't have a clue, okay? And then I want to talk a little bit about the contemptibility of man. God is incomprehensible, but man is contemptible. In fact, it's amazing to me as I studied, Isaiah was probably as good as anybody in the Old Testament. He was about as pure as anybody in the Old Testament. He was about as righteous as anybody in the Old Testament, okay? But even he could not even come close to capturing the majesty of Almighty God. Well, let's start with God, the incomprehensible God. The way it's written is kind of interesting. Did you notice in verse 1, Isaiah writes, in the year the king died, and then in verse 5 he says, I saw the king. Uh, It's not just a play on words, but I think there's a reason for that. The king died, oh, but, you know, I saw the king. Notice verse 1 says, I saw the Lord. Now, the word is Adonai, okay? And that word means the he that which is totally sovereign. You understand that? He that is in total control. He that is never shook up. He that never wonders, that always directs. Ultimately, everything that happens in everybody's life. That's what Adonai means. It means sovereign God, that he is master. It means that he is in complete control of everything that happens in this world whenever it happens, that he chooses it to happen according to his will, the way he wants it, and he uses whom he wills, whether they're righteous or unrighteous, to accomplish his master plan his sovereign plan in this nation, and everything that happens in your life. There is no chance here. There is no happenstance here. It is that God is in ultimate, sovereign, total control. This morning, I actually brought another shirt with me to church for some reason, and I thought, well, if I don't like this shirt, I'll change shirts. And by the time I got into my truck, my coffee spilled all over my shirt. And I was driving to church thinking, God, why did you do that? You see, I think he's so sovereign, I think he spilled coffee on my shirt. I guess he didn't want me to wear it, see? And I think sometimes we have a little trouble thinking that God isn't, God, why would God bring rain on a Sunday morning when people are driving to church? I wonder how many turned around and said, oh, I think I'll go back to bed. See, God is in, he's Adonai. He's in complete sovereign control because he's the master of everything that's happened. Yes, the king has died, but there is a king, Isaiah said, 
that is everlasting to everlasting, and it is God. Now, did you notice in verse 1 how Isaiah saw him? Let me just kind of point that out to you. He saw him mightily, did he? He saw him magnificently. He saw him majestically. He saw him in his power. He saw him in his purity. He saw him in his preeminence. He saw himself existent. He saw himself sufficient. He saw himself righteous. He saw him on a throne. The other king was in a tomb. Oh, but this king is alive. He's on a throne and he lives forever. Notice the description Isaiah uses. The train of his robe filled the temple. Let me say it this way. The hem of his garment filled the worship center. Can you imagine what would happen? What could happen at Indian Springs Baptist Church if we were to receive, if we could see this kind of glory? How big must have been the throne? How big must have been the worship center if the hem of his garment covered it all? He mentioned seraphim means blazing ones, fiery ones, flying about crying, holy, 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 the earth is full of his glory. The only place where seraphim are mentioned in the Bible is here. The only place where those words are strung together are here. You see, when God's holiness is proclaimed, and when God's holiness is shouted, gang, things get shook up. The place was rattling. When God is proclaimed as completely, totally, absolutely, the holiest of the holy, separate and incomprehensible from everything else the world might attempt to define, it is at that point that the foundations begin to rattle with the glory of God. Whether it be a a, a church or whether it be an individual, Chuck Colson rattled with the glory of the incomprehensible God. The word holy, Wednesday night with our preteen class, I I, I told them the word holy means to be set apart or to be set aside. It means to be totally different. The word holy means to be uncommon. Now listen to me. It means to be totally uncommon. Can you imagine the force of that word? being strung together three times, uncommon, uncommon, uncommon. And yet we live amongst the people like Isaiah did, amongst the people where God has become very common. Hey, he's as common as a trip to the lake. He's as common as a game of ball. He's as common as 18 holes on a course, five hours on a deer stand. He's as common as a marathon, isn't he? You see, when Isaiah saw him, do you think Isaiah was thinking other things? Or do you think Isaiah was caught up in the majesty and the holiness of God? Now, are those other things wrong? No, not wrong at all. Unless you take God and bring him down into the mix. You see, if you have all these things that we get so caught up in life and then we add God to the mix, it's very wrong. Those things may not be wrong in and of themselves if God 
is lofty and exalted in your heart. You see, dear people, when we try to bring God down into our world, we fail. It's a deadly fall. It's a deadly failure. Only he is holy. Let me give you something to grab hold of before we shift. God is outside of our categories. Now, what I mean by that is this. You, you write up your life. You take your life and you segment it and divide it and, and all that kind of stuff. What people tend to do is in this thing called life, in this big pie called life, they fit God into the pie. See? So we try to define God in terms we can understand. We try to define God in ways that we can live with it. But the fact of the matter is you can never define God that way, and you can never fit God into our categories. Isaiah saw him, and Isaiah realized, this is not who I thought. This is not what I thought. God is holy and righteous. God is totally different. I can't even grab hold of, I can't even understand. Job said, I can't even get my head on him. You see, he's incomprehensible. That's why he is God. And the moment we try to bring him into our world and define him in our terms and fit him into our schedules is the moment that we've lost God. Now let me shift for a moment. Look at verse 5 and 6. Let's talk about contemptible man. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it. He said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. No pew jumping here, folks. No back padding. No living your best life now. No feeling good, no prosperity pumping here. Isaiah was a godly man. And Isaiah fell in repentance and acknowledgement of his sin. You see, when he saw who God was, he saw who he was, and he knew that he was dead. The words mean more than just dumb it means that I am destroyed. I am dead. I'm destroyed. And everyone in this nation is dead as well. He saw his sin, didn't he? Hmm? That's what he did. He saw his sin. I wonder what would happen if Indian Springs Baptist Church really saw her sin before a thrice holy God. We live in a culture where we think God owes us something. We live in a culture where we think God is beholding to us. Let me tell you something, dear people. God's beholding to no one. The word iniquity in verse 7 means an inner twistedness. That's what Chuck Colson was talking about. I began to see my twistedness. I began to see that, that inner evil 
that lurks in the heart of every man. I saw my iniquity, that inner twistedness. You see, iniquity not only causes us to sin, iniquity is the result of our sin. We're twisted and perverse, and we just simply follow the course of our nature. Gang, when Isaiah saw God, he didn't say, wow, look at this. When Isaiah saw God, he said, whoa, look at me. And this must always happen before a person can be cleansed. You see, there must be condemnation before there there is ever cleansing. Condemnation must precede cleansing. There must be law before there is ever grace. Where there is sin around, it is there someone has got to pay the price. You say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. God loves me. That's his job. No, it's not his job. He's holy and righteous. In his sovereign grace, he may choose to love you. In his sovereign grace, he may choose to save you. But dear people, God's not required to do anything for you. He's too holy to bow down to your agenda. He's too holy to bow down to your demands. He's too holy to bow down to your needs. We have this idea in our country that we can manipulate God, that we can do all this praying and get God to do anything we want to do. We have this idea in our country that God is a big Santa Claus. That's a skewed theology from a pagan culture called America. You see. Notice what happens here. A seraph gets a tong. He grabs a coal from the altar. That's very important. Why a tong? Was it that it was too hot? No. Seraphim are blazing ones. They're fire. It wasn't too hot, folks. It was too holy. You see, you can't be cleansed from sin until there's a sacrifice upon an altar. It's a picture of the atonement of Jesus Christ who was slaughtered for your sin. Isaiah saw that. He realized, oh, it wasn't too hot. That coal came from the sacrifice. It was too holy. And you can't be saved unless you're totally cleansed from sin by someone who is perfectly pure, someone who is worthy to be placed on that altar of sacrifice, someone who is willing to be placed on that altar of sacrifice and slaughter, someone who is willing to give his life for sin. And when that truth hits you, And when somehow in our puny minds we somehow comprehend just a little bit of that, then, dear people, we begin to see God not as a manipulative thing that we can get to do our bidding. We begin to bow down to a holy God that expects us to do His bidding. I want you to listen to me. I'm about through. That's all I've got this morning, but listen to me. Isaiah offered no sacrifice for his atonement. Did you catch that? There was an altar. There was a sacrifice. There was a slaughter. Isaiah offered none for his atonement. He didn't offer to be a better person. 
He didn't say, I have to reform my life. I need to get my act together so God could love me. He had no power to reform his life, even if he wanted to. Most folks don't want to until God first acts, but he had no power. Even if he wanted to, he had no power to do that. All he could do was cry, sin, 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 in response to holy, holy, holy. You see, God's wrath, dear people, was satisfied by an altar, by a sacrifice, and by a slaughter of the Son of God. That's what this picture is. That's why the Old Testament is replete with pictures of the coming atonement, of the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, Christ, the atonement for sin. Now, there's much more to the passage, and next week maybe we'll dig out some more things, but I want to end. I wanted just to do the whole chapter. I almost started a filibuster like they did this past week in Congress. If we were to continue reading next week, we'll talk about Isaiah's surrender. We'll talk about Isaiah's, the Lord willing, his sacrifice. As he preached this message, the eleven was totally rejected. Do you know that Isaiah, while we, we read his writings and we just get humbled by his writings, you know that he was a, a most ineffective preacher of his day? Hmm? You know that? Now, we read he's effective for many today. But in his day, when he preached, they didn't listen. He was a, mo- he was a failure as a preacher. But he had saw God. And it changed the course of his life and his ministry. Let me close with this. When a man sees God truly, then that man will see his sin. It always happens. See, the reason people aren't saved is they don't see their sin. They don't understand their sin. They think it's some little blip. They think it's a tub... um, What do you call it when you stub your toe? Toe stubbing mistake. They don't see sin. Hey, I I make a mistake here. They'll even acknowledge sometimes they're driven by forces they can't quite get their head around. That's not what it is at all. Sin is an abomination to a holy, righteous God. Sin brings a fiery wrath upon a person because of their sin or because of a substitute who would... Have enough purity to take their place upon a cross. And yet when a man and when a woman sees their sin, only then can they see a righteous God. Only then do they understand the condemnation they so deserve. It's only then they'll see God in his purity, in his power, in his preeminence. When a man truly sees God, certain things begin to happen. First thing, he's going to receive conviction from God. He's going to understand that he is undone, that he's a dead man on a way to a living hell. That's birthed by God. That's the conviction of the Spirit upon that one 
who is sinful. He'll receive conviction. He'll offer confession. Yes, God. Whoa, woe is me. I'm an unclean man. I, I have unclean lips. I live in a nation of uncleanliness. That always happens when a man sees his sin. Conviction always leads to confession. Then he'll be cleansed by God. No help, no cooperation, no teamwork. Salvation is solely based upon the work of God and God's grace. There is no cooperation. Catholics, I hope you're not Catholic or I have friends who are Catholic. If you're Catholic, I'm sorry, I don't want to upset you, but the fact of the matter is the Catholic Church doesn't teach salvation. The Catholic Church says you've got to work along with God for your salvation. That's a major difference. That's a biblical challenge. That's a theological incompatibility, folks. When you say, I'm going to cooperate with God, I'm going to work with God in my salvation, next thing you'll be doing is lighting candles and praying to saints. You see, Salvation is holy, solely upon God's work of grace in your heart. There is no salvation in any other way. We don't operate, cooperate with God. We bow before a thrice holy God. That's the only way you can be saved, you see. Chuck Colson saw it. He said it was the greatest adventure of his life. He said it was an adventure into the holiness and majesty of God. You want to take a trip this morning? You want to start an adventure this morning? An adventure like you've never been on before in your life, then see God. Then see your sin. In everything in your life, in everything in your eternity, will change. Chuck Colson was worse than anybody. In fact, he was worse than everybody in this room combined. And yet the matchless grace of Jesus birth into his heart, regeneration. He responded through repentance of his sin and faith alone in Jesus Christ. And all oh, dear people, he was gloriously saved. And all you got to do is read about his life. All you got to do is read some of the things he wrote and you'll realize that God became real. And it wasn't religion. It was God. I saw the Lord. And what an adventure took place. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for a wonderful passage of Scripture. God, we fail to see you so often in our, in our sinfulness, and we fail to see you in your holiness. We need passages like this that remind us, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty.